welcome to Dare to Use the F Word, the podcast that brings you stories about how millennials are taking on feminist ideas and making them their own. I'm Rebecca Lee Douglas. And I'm Cabret Betty, Barnard Class of 2014. I'll be your co-host today. Dare to Use the F Word is a production of Barnard College and the Barnard Center for Research on Women. In today's episode, we're focusing on the concept of perfection, why so many women feel the need to be perfect in all aspects of their lives, and how that drive affects our sense of well-being. To explore this concept, we'll hear from Barnard President Deborah Spar about her new book, Wonder Women, Sex, Power, and the Quest for Perfection. In her book, President Spar argues that the women of her generation misinterpreted the message of earlier feminist movements. Because they felt that they could now have it all, they felt obligated to do it all. She urges women to stop pursuing that perfection and to instead pursue only what makes them happy and balanced. Wonder Women is part academic look at the current state of feminist culture and part autobiography. Most of the book is dedicated to the difficulties faced by women of her age group, but we were curious about how the themes of perfection apply to millennials. President Spar recently sat down for an interview with Jimmy Wilson to discuss her new book. Jimmy Wilson is a feminist media activist. Her work has focused on providing young women with the skills and resources to change the conversation in media today. She was the vice president of programs at the Women's Media Center and is currently the TED Prize storyteller at TED conferences. She's also a millennial, so we felt that Jimia was a good fit for this topic. Your book challenges this myth of having it all. I love the frame of the Wonder Woman myth because um, Wonder Woman kind of resonates um, beyond generations. But a lot of young women are entering the work world now with massive goals, and I'm thinking that they might interpret your message of being realistic or thinking realistically about what you might do as a call to temper their dreams. And I'm wondering, how do you think that women can still dream big while also preserving their well-being, remaining realistic, and defining themselves on their own terms? So what do you think being enough means? Right, and I think I... Um, the book is quite explicit about this. As the book has been um, gone through the media cycles, it, it understandably it sort of gets condensed into sound bites, and the sound bites aren't quite accurate because very much what I'm saying in the book is not that women should pull back or lean out or opt out or you know pick whatever verb form you want. I'm saying that women should be as ambitious and aggressive as they want to be. And some women will, will want to be more ambitious and aggressive than others. What I am saying, though, is that if you want to be very, very ambitious with your career, if you really do want to get to the top of whatever field you're, you're looking towards, then you have to be realistic and acknowledge the fact that other parts of your life are going to have to be more flexible. Because at the end of the day, it's just the math. There are only so many hours in a week. And to get to the top of any profession, it's, it's not a 35-hour week. It's a 40 or 50 or 60-hour week. And you're going to have to go into this process knowing that other things, for some period of time, but it's a long period of time, will have to fall out of your life. You really advocate the power of the word no. And um, you know, as someone who I think grew up very much in pursuit of being the good girl all the time, I love that, advocating for the power of no. And just wondered, what kind of advice do you have for young women around setting those boundaries in our lives, especially in terms of people in positions of authority and power? I think that in some ways, um, 
would be the hardest place for people to set those right. boundaries. You know, it's interesting. I was having a conversation along very different lines with my own daughter, who's 17. And this we were having a social conversation, but it struck me afterwards that, that it's I think it's a phrase that cuts into the professional world. And I was saying to her, when you're in a complicated situation, it's always better to say no rather than maybe. Mm. Maybe is where you get into trouble. If you leave open the opportunity, yeah, maybe I'll go out with you, or yeah, gee, I, I'll, I'll try to do my best to get the presentation done. That's when you're going to get into trouble because you will, you'll wind up feeling guilty, beating yourself up, and probably doing a bad job. If somebody gives you a task that you're not certain you can do, the first thing you should say is, thank you so much for the offer. May I have a day or two to think about it? Mm. And just make clear, I need to think about it. Then take that day or two or whatever you've, you've contracted for. And then if you really don't want to do it or can't do it, say no clearly and give your reasons why. And that's much safer than trying to do something and, and not doing it well. In your book, one of my favorite moments is you, cause in terms of imagining this happening, was you writing about gathering a group of young women to talk about millennial hookup culture. And you talked about how most of these young women that you talked to had watched pornography online. And we all know that porn has been a feminist issue for years where some people um, think it's empowering and some people think it's awful and exploitative. What's changed, do you think, in terms of how common and how prevalent pornography has become among this generation and because of the internet? And what do you think this change is doing to affect and impact young women? Yeah, and I can only speculate here because I have to say that the topic of porn is not one I've really spent a- any part of my career looking at until very, very recently. But, but just intuitively, I think the internet has, has changed this dramatically, that because porn is just so easily accessible, there's not even the, the stigma of buying it at, you know, in, in the brown paper bag from the corner store. It's literally on your desktop. It's on your TV screen. It's just there constantly. So my sense is that women are, are being exposed to a great deal more pornography. Maybe I'm just hopelessly old-fashioned or middle-aged here, but it ups the perfection in a whole new dimension. And there, there's even been, I have seen a couple of interesting, albeit speculative studies, that it's actually even been quite damaging for young men because they're somehow just you know, beginning to experiment with their own sexuality with very, very strong images of how they should be having sex. And if they're not living up to that, that standard, they feel like they're failing. And there have been increased reports of men on college campuses reporting sexual, uh, sexual dysfunction. And there's some speculation, again, that it's just because they've been watching so much porn. Jimmy's next question addresses a section of the book where President Spar writes about her struggle with an eating disorder. Here's an excerpt to give you some context. At first, like millions of 14-year-old girls, I just cut out the Cokes and candy from vending machines then the second helpings, then any meal that my parents didn't witness. Soon I was subsisting on popcorn and canned zucchini and walking feverishly for miles whenever I had the chance. As the pounds came off, I scrutinized myself even more closely in the full-length mirror that hung in my room. Still way too flabby across the stomach, I concluded, hips too broad, at least another five pounds to go. At my peak, and oddly, horribly, I still regard it that way, I was down to 88 pounds. My breast disappeared entirely, as did my periods. When my parents took me to the family doctor, he was nonplussed. Well, sure, he agreed. She's thin, but so are most girls. And she doesn't exactly look like a ballerina yet. 
you wrote about your own struggle with anorexia as a teenager and wondering, do you think that that experience would have been different if you had been born in 1985 or 1995 instead of 1963? Yeah, that's a, that's, that too is a very good question. I suspect it would be. I mean, in retrospect, I actually had anorexia pretty early. Mm. Always ahead of the curve, um, <laughs> even in very bad things. And, and my poor parents, you know, really didn't know what to do. I think now watching um, some of my friends struggling with their daughters dealing with anorexia, there's, you know, high school counselors know how to deal with this. Doctors know how to deal with this. There, there's a whole other array of resources. Having said that, um, I was lucky. I, I got over it. I mean, I don't think anyone ever truly gets over it. But I got over the worst of it, um, you know, by the time I was, I was sort of halfway through college. And so somehow I managed to struggle, struggle through it. And I, you know, I'm, I, I'm sure that had I, um, had I been born later, I would have had, for better or worse, a lot more resources put around me. It's true that sometimes these new resources can be used for better or for worse. Millennials have a much easier time finding help for eating disorders than women of earlier generations might have. But to build on President Spar's point about the Internet's effect on young people, these new resources can cause pain as well. There are communities of young women online who encourage each other to become sicker and sicker, tumblers dedicated to the adoration of the so-called thigh gap, and websites praising Anna and Mia, or anorexia and bulimia. The idea of sick bodies as perfect bodies was present in both generations, but manifested in different ways. In the book, your call to action is for young women to channel the passion of their political foremothers and put it again to good use. And I'm, I'm wondering what you, how you would respond to the idea that there's this message that prevails that young women are apathetic about feminism. And I've seen and experienced firsthand that it's actually the opposite, that there's many young women and girls who are taking action on and offline, but they're using new lexicon to talk about what they're doing and they're using new tools. and they're doing this work in a different way. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are about this being in a campus like Barnard where there's a lot of this activity going on and then also what young activist-led movements are inspiring you right now. So we had this wonderful moment on campus a year or so ago when someone, it was in a large crowd, um, somebody posed almost exactly the same question. It was an older feminist and she said, how come the young generation isn't seizing upon feminism more actively? And an even older woman stood up and she said, you know, how many of us in this room would call ourselves suffragettes? Mm. And I thought it was a beautiful comment because it did touch on the fact that lexicon changes. And I think feminism was, to a large extent, the inheritor of the suffragette movement, but it redefined itself and it created a new vocabulary. And I think it's unfair for an older generation to push the newer generation to follow precisely in its footsteps. I, I think we have to, I think we have to cut your generation some slack. And, and I have to say, and I spend a lot of time with millennials, both in, you know, in terms of my, my job and also my kids are right in that demographic. So I'm sort of surrounded um, by millennials. It's an amazing generation. I, I think the generation that's coming of age right now is gritty they're realistic, they are way more tolerant of diversity. I mean, I think that's been one of the, the biggest changes I've seen in, in my lifetime. You know, no one was openly gay in my high school, no one. You know, my, each of my three kids have several gay friends. Uh, people are much more comfortable with different forms of sexuality. Um, I have, a, a, one of my children is adopted. She would have, I think that would have been a tougher thing to acknowledge 
when I was growing up, I, I, most or many of my kids have, you know, they've come from blended families, biracial families, one parent families. I, I think this generation is way more tolerant. And I think they're very active. Um, if I have any frustration with the millennial generation, it's I see them being in some ways almost too independently entrepreneurial. And I've said this in, in other fora that, um, you know, everyone I see is starting a girl's school in Africa. And that's wonderful, but they should probably get together. And that's what one of the things I'm arguing for in the book is to pool their energies. Um, and, and, and I think some of the blame here goes to the colleges that we've somehow set out the the incorrect signal that we want everyone to have started their own NGO before they're 18. So I think we need to pool the, the, um, all this energy. But I see this generation deeply involved with the world, determined to change the world. And then finally, and, and this is a little bit of a silver lining, previous generations who graduated from college kind of knew they could get a job pretty easily they tended to fall into herd behavior, that when Wall Street was hot, everybody went to Wall Street. When corporate law was hot, everybody went to law school. This generation, the bad news is um, this generation is graduating into a tougher economy. The good news in that, I think, is that people really do feel that it's okay to figure out what they want to do. They may want to brew craft beer for a while. They may want to go into public advocacy law. They may want to go to Wall Street. But I see much less of a herd mentality among our students and people of this generation. Um, and I think that's actually a really good thing. Jimmy's next question has to do with some of the other recent books that Wonder Women is being compared to in the media. Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In, Women Work and the Will to Lead, and Hannah Rosen's The End of Men and the Rise of Women. Um, Lean In was critiqued as well as The End of Men as solely appealing to a more white middle class affluent sensibility and I was wondering how you respond to that critique um, and what do you think that your specific intervention um, though personal and through your experience has to offer women of marginalized communities or all women in general right and I think I think the critique is totally accurate one of the things I really tried to be clear about in the book although it, obviously it's it's delicate is to say I can't write for all women um, I could have written a different book, but insofar as this book is personal and it's, it's sort of loosely structure, structured around the arc of my own life, I would have been disingenuous to sort of tack on to every section. And this is how it applies to women from marginalized communities. I just didn't feel I would be honest in doing that. I do think there are certain commonalities that cut across all women's situations. They're small. I mean, I don't think any book could claim to speak for all women because we're 51% of humanity. So again, there's a little bit of an interesting gender bias that when a man writes a book, people don't somehow expect that he's going to speak for all mankind. No, it, it is interesting that, that somehow these, these books on women's issues, the, the, the critical presumption is that we will speak to all women. Well, you can't. But I think that what I found, particularly in the way people have responded to the book and to earlier articles, is that this element of expectation, the, expectation, the expectations of perfection actually cut across. And I think for women of color, from what I know, they're even higher and harder. Because for ma many women of color, they have the added expectation of, and I'm the first in my family to be going down this path. And I don't know what to do with the fact that my features are different from what sort of the Caucasian um, expectation is. So I think women of color face the same expectations times two. 
And then for poor women of color, it's the same expectations times two with the horrible fact that just, you know, getting the education, getting to, to be in a position of, of, um, of actually having a career is that much harder. But the, the underlying pressure, I think, is the same as is the underlying biology, which is a point I make explicitly with some trepidation in the book, that I think feminism in, in any of its variants does have to grapple explicitly with the fact that women are having going to have the babies and men won't. And that is a fundamental fact. And that, that's the one thing that cuts across the entire species, and it's important. And so speaking about being a woman in general, um, I wanted just to ask a broad question. What do you think is the most challenging aspect of being a leader who happens to be a woman? I think, I think different women would answer that question in different ways. You will still today always be seen as a woman's leader. You know, we don't look at Bill Gates and say, oh, he's a male leader. He's just a leader. Women always are being evaluated as a female leader. And that subjects them to another whole prism. How do they look? How do they dress? How do they mother? How do they love? Men just don't get asked those questions. So women are just always going to have many more factors on which they are evaluated. The second one is more subtle, and I don't think this applies to all women by any stretch of the imagination, and I think it does apply to many men. But I think in general, women feel that they need to be liked. And it's very hard to lead any organization if you want everyone in that organization to like you. It's just not going to happen. And I think for many women, myself included, that makes leadership hard. So thank you so much for talking with me today. And um, just last thing I wanted to say is, is there any last words, any message that you'd specifically want to give young women and millennial generation as advice moving forward or a takeaway? Um, based on your book. Yeah, I would, I would just go back. First of all, thank you for doing this. It's great to, to talk with you and to meet you a little bit. And my one you know, parting word of, words of advice would be give up on the perfection. Nobody's perfect. It's a myth. Find what you love. Find what you're good at. Find what makes you happy. Be good at that. And let some of the other stuff slide. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's all for this month's episode, but make sure to catch next month's show in our Millennial Feminists Around the World series. This show is dedicated to the story of a 17-year-old girl who survived her father's self-immolation, lived in an Afghan prison, was separated from her home and her family, and is now working to improve the lives of women and children in Afghanistan. Check out the website for Barnard Center for Research on Women at bcrw.barnard.edu. You can listen to our podcast there, or you can subscribe to Dare to Use the F Word on iTunes to download. And send your questions, comments, and ideas for future shows to bcrw at barnard.edu. Thanks to our guests, President Deborah Spar and to Jimmy Wilson. And a special thanks to Sarah Dooley, who composed our theme, and also to my co-host, Gabrette Yabetti. That's all we have for today, but we'd like to leave you with a dare. Use the F word.